1: STRIPPING DOWN SCIENCE THE NAKED SCIENTISTS Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith, and also here this week is Dr. Kat Hello. And Dr. Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi there. Now, this week, the Cambridge Science Festival has kicked off in a very big way, and we'll be bringing you a roundup of the best of the fest, plus how scientists have solved the mystery of why teenagers feel grumpy. And yes, whilst it's so unfair, it's definitely not their fault. We'll also be hearing how pigeons home, in other words, how scientists have found magnetic particles in their heads that help them to navigate using the Earth's magnetic field and also how caterpillars click before they're sick to ward off predator's cat.
2: Also this week, we'll be finding out how scientists have solved a four-billion-year-old mystery with the dis- discovery of a strange object lurking in the outer solar system. Um, I think it might be my old biology teacher. And we'll be talking to the man who's found the viral equivalent of a sarcophagus. Apparently it protects insect viruses in the soil, but it might actually be the key to better vaccines in the future.
3: And in kitchen science, I'll be doing the coolest experiment ever, freezing a bottle of fizzy drink in front of your very eyes just by opening it. Find out how to do this- this at home in just a few minutes time
1: and if you're in the mood to win some stuff we've got a fabulous mud powered clock to give away it's quite a hard question but if you can tell us if the entire sahara desert was covered in solar panels how much electricity would it generate then there could be a mud powered clock donated by noisemakers coming your way the naked Scientists podcast powered by uk fast the uk's best hosting provider on the web at UKFast.net. Now we've all been teenagers once and it's not pleasant, is it? You just feel aggressive, you feel wound up, things just get on your nerves. And why should that be? It's interesting because it's not just things getting on your nerves because when scientists have asked people to try to work out what other people's emotions are young children are very good at doing it, adults are very good at doing it teenagers are no good at doing it. So why should we have this sudden behavioural change at around teenage that comes and then goes again? Well there's a researcher called Cheryl Smith who works in New York and they were looking at the chemistry of the of the adolescent brain and they found that there's a substance which is in everyone's brain it's called allopregnanolone or thp and this is like the brain's relaxing chemical so when you have a stressful experience the brain pumps out a little bit of this allopregnanolone and what it does is it increases the activity of a nerve transmitter chemical which is called GABA which is gamma amino butyric acid and what GABA does is actually makes your brain calmer it reduces the activity of nerve cells so it therefore makes you feel less stressed but when people are in their teenage years for some reason the effect is reversed, and this stuff, instead of calming your brain down, actually makes you feel more tense, and it does so in the part of the brain called the limbic system, which is concerned with making emotions and making you feel hot and bothered, which is why when you actually actually get wound up about something, you tend to overstep the mark a little bit when you're a teenager, probably down to this chemical. I don't actually think that uh, people are going to try and come up with some kind of treatment, though. I think that this is um, more to the point that... It's unfortunate, but now we know what's causing it, and therefore we should cut people a bit of slack when they're having a bad day when they're a teenager.
2: Like, whatever... Are you bothered? I'm not bothered. (laughs) God, you're so sad. Anyway, homing pigeons can find their way safely back home over distances of more than a thousand miles. But birds don't do this with sat-nav. They actually have to rely on natural navigation. So uh, it's known that they use the sun, the position of the sun as a compass. And it's also been known for a while that birds can use the Earth's magnetic field to help them find their way home. But we don't really know much about how this actually works. And now scientists have thought for a while that birds like pigeons, they might have iron-based molecules somewhere in their bodies that are responding to this magnetic field. And so Goethe Fleissner and her colleagues at the University of Frankfurt think that they've actually found these metal particles now. And they found little particles of iron-based molecules called maghemite and magnetite in special parts of nerve cells known as sensory dendrites, which are in the uh, the skin that lines the upper beak of homing pigeons, so basically in their nose um and these these uh, crystals contain iron oxide compounds that are formed by the reaction of iron and oxygen now they found that these dendrites these parts of the nerve cells are arranged in really complex three-dimensional patterns and the scientists think that this allows the birds to to orientate themselves in three-dimensional space so sort of up down and uh, and across so effectively, they've got their own sat-nav in their beaks.
1: So this is anatomical data, Cat, isn't it? They've looked, yeah. found something that could do this, but have they done the logical experiment, let's put pigeons in a magnetic field and see if they fly in the wrong direction?
2: Uh, they haven't done that yet, but um, some other researchers have done experiments like that with animals that use the magnetic field. Because we were talking and about, about bats they, long ago, yeah. weren't we?
1: And bats have definitely been proven to navigate this way and the guys put these bats in a magnetic field at sunset and it's really cool because as the sun goes down, the bats use the position of the sun to set their internal compass because they know the mm. sun sets and rises on the appropriate side of the horizon obviously. They use that as their reference point and then set their compass according to whatever the Earth's magnetic field is doing at that point and so they know which direction to fly. So when the guys put the bats in a magnetic cage so that it was pointing their magnetic field in the wrong direction at sunset, the bats all took off in the wrong direction because their compass had gone
2: Exactly, They're, so scientists think that they use this kind of, the sun as a compass and then magnets as a map but before now they hadn't really found what it is yeah, people think that these magnetic particles are in bird brains, but now it looks like they've actually tracked them down. And uh, so the, the question remains: Are these kind of particles in in other birds that? What about um, us? That navigate? Maybe in us? I I mean, is that
1: your sense of direction? Because some Certainly people do not have a good. In men, I do you think. have a good sense of direction? <laughs> I've
2: got quite a good one. Because yeah.
1: my wife's got an excellent <laughs> sense of direction, and I am terrible. Um, I but think she still has to turn the map upside down. Definitely. Do you turn the map upside down? No. No, because my wife has to turn the map upside down. I don't. I can I can visualise things in three dimensions very well, but I am absolutely hopeless. When we were wandering around in Paris, it was the only time she went wrong and I was right. Most of the time she'll say, you need to turn left here, and I'll say, no, it's got to be right. And she'll say, no, it's definitely left, and, it, and it's left.
2: I think there's a whole show of discussion here about <laughs> whether men and women are better at finding their direction.
1: So the bottom line with this pigeon business is...
2: Pigeons... In their beaks, in the skin in their beaks, in the nerve cells, they think they found these magnetic particles now, which explains how homing pigeons, how they set their map using the Earth's magnetic field. Obviously, more work needs to be done but it's very interesting.
3: Now, scientists um, think they've found huge amounts of water on Mars. Um, the European Mars Express spacecraft got to Mars in December 2003. They didn't start looking for the water under the surface until mid-2005. It's because they've used a great big radar called Marsis, which used a 40-metre-long antenna. And the way they were making that antenna, because you can't fit it in the space rocket because it'd be far too big, so the way they deployed it was they were using an explosion to expl- blow the things out sideways. They are very worried it would break, so they made sure they done lots of research before they set, built this, set this radar up, because otherwise they could have broken their spacecraft, and that would be kind of embarrassing.
1: It was very uh, expensive, too, I should um, think. <laughs> you can't really practically go to Mars and fix it, can you? It's not very convenient, no. Um, so it's
3: not the, very possible, I wouldn't have thought, is it, at the moment? Not at all, yeah. It could <laughs> cost you thousands of billions of pounds, and it would be five years under I one. thought we
1: already knew that there was a lot of water on Mars. Well, they've, they've found quite
3: a lot of water in various places, but there's, there's an ice cap on the South Pole, which is, they know it's covered in carbon dioxide ice, but they can't, you can't see under that to see what's under it. They also had no idea how thick it was. Hmm. Because this radar is a very lo- low frequency, very long wavelength, they can see up to four kilometres into the surface of Mars. And looking at the South Pole, they thought that the um, ground was rising quite sharply. When they actually look at the data, the ground's actually flat. And so there's, two, there's three or four times more water in more ice cap there than they thought. So it's actually on average about 2.3 miles thick all the way over the ice cap, which is enough water to cover the whole of Mars in 10 metres of water.
1: That's a lot of water, isn't well, it?
3: Quite a lot of water, although they think from looking at Mars and the way it's been eroded by water, there's ten ty- there was originally 10 times more water there. Um, and so the scientists are still looking to try and find the rest of it.
1: Because it's interesting about Mars, isn't it? Because people notice that there's this massive sea of ice down the bottom end of the polar region, as you said, but it seems to do something funny with the seasons, that in wintertime it, it changes colour. And it becomes much more reflective and whiter, and then in the summertime it becomes a different colour. And people thought, well, is this some massive sandstorm coming along that kind of covers the ice over in summer? And then it refreezes and gets rid of the sand in winter. And actually it was something much more cunning that they found out was going on. And it's calm dioxide is evaporating because it's, it's dry ice. The calm dioxide evaporates, forms little gas tunnels up through the ice, and it fires like a little miniature geezer. Oh, I should say ge- geyser. Geyser's wrong, isn't it? Geyser.
2: In it, wicked.
1: A geyser. It fires little little bits of uh, dust and silica particles from the surface up with this arising CO2, which then slowly covers the ice temporarily, and that's why it changes colour. And then, of course, once that effect, once the, the Mars goes through its cold winter again, this effect stops, that blows away pristine ice again. Ooh, very neat. Got well, an interesting thing here about caterpillars, actually, because I was reading this this week. It was actually a story, a New Scientist, and there's a lady called Sarah Brown who's been looking at silk moth caterpillars. Now, most of us, when we when we talk about things defending themselves, you know, what's the normal way that an animal defends itself against predation? Bites at ankles. Well, it can do that, but usually that's a form of predation in itself. But how does something ward off attacks by things it doesn't want attacking it. It
2: makes itself disgusting.
1: Yeah, it looks bad. So there's, for instance, a grasshopper in Africa which says to meerkats, if you eat me you will die because I, I, I contain a deadly toxin and they know that because this thing's bright red, there's no missing it. It costs a lot of energy to make these bright red molecules and these colour molecules. So a more cunning approach, which these silk moth caterpillars have, have, have taken on, is instead what they do is to make some sounds. So they don't have any funny funny colours, bright warding off, don't come near me colours. Instead, they are perfectly camouflaged. They are green colours. You can't normally see them, pick them out from the background. So they don't announce their presence, which gives them an advantage to start with. But when something does discover them, rather than do anything straight away, what they do is to make some clicking noises. And their noise is a bit like sort of fingernails snapping together. And then once they make those clicking noises, they ooze out some sort of juice, which, if you put this juice onto food stuff, then birds and ants, when you try and challenge them with it, will, will not touch it. They think it's disgusting. So it looks like this is very clever. These animals, these interesting caterpillars, have taken a totally different approach to trying to work out how to ward off predation, because instead of using bright colours, they use a bit of sound and then some chemistry. But they remain hidden for the most time, so they don't announce their presence.
2: That's pretty cunning. Um, So how how many of us in the studio are carrying a little bit of extra spare tyre around our tummies? No, we're all pretty pretty trim in here.
1: I'm pretty Uh, slim, I reckon.
2: Yeah, but uh, if you are carrying a bit of spare tyre in the tummy department, uh, you probably think it's just affecting your clothing size, but increasingly it's becoming clear that uh, being overweight or obese actually has significant impacts on your health. And now researchers in the US have found that fat in the belly might actually be involved in fueling inflammation in the body. So when you think of the word inflammation, you probably think of the the redness or swelling that you get if you've got an infected cut. But actually inflammation throughout the body uh, is called systemic inflammation and the molecules that are involved in that, they play a really important role in many diseases including diabetes, uh, heart disease and even now cancer. Um, Most studies of of fat in the belly have actually just looked at subcutaneous fat, the fat just under the skin. Um, But they haven't really found a link between this type of fat and inflammation. And they found out, in fact, they did uh, some studies. If people have had liposuction to take out that fat, it actually doesn't change their their risk of these kind of inflammatory diseases.
1: So what they're saying is the fat's a symptom rather than the cause then?
2: Well, that's subcutaneous fat. So in this study, what they've done is looked at visceral fat. Now, that's the fat that's wrapped around the internal organs in your tummy. And to do this, they took some um, very obese people and took blood samples from a vein called the hepatic portal vein, which kind of carries blood from digestive organs into the liver. And they compared this blood that had been through all the fat tissue with blood that they took from their arms. And they measured the levels of the different molecules that were involved in inflammation. And they found that really high levels of two molecules in particular um, called IL-6 and C-reactive protein, which are known to be involved in systemic inflammation and related to diseases like uh, insulin resistance, high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes. And so um, this is why maybe people with more fat in their tummy, apple-shaped people, are actually more at risk of disease like heart disease and diabetes then more pear-shaped people um, who have their, their fat in their hips and thighs. A bit
1: nitpicky though, Kat, but that blood vessel does drain a few things more than just the fat so there's more to it than just the fat it could be something else too going on couldn't it so we don't really know that it's just the fat that's to blame there
2: yeah but if you're looking at the difference between that blood and uh the blood in the arm is that it really has gone particularly in these people who are very overweight has gone through a lot of that visceral fat and it's the first time that a link has been found between this kind of fat as opposed to subcutaneous fat
1: So Naked Scientists with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Katz our science best of the fest show this week celebrating the launch of the Cambridge Science Festival more on that coming up shortly we'll also be hearing how scientists have solved a four billion year old mystery on the outskirts of our solar system with the discovery of a very very strange object lurking out there and what it broke up to make that's coming up and also the discovery of an insect virus sarcophagus scientists have uncovered these funny crystals that grow in insect cells and they have viruses locked up inside them and they can protect viruses for a very long time the Naked Scientists, supported by the Welcome Trust. Now Dave, I've got a question here it's it's actually more of a comment, it's been sent in by Eric Skonberg, who's actually listening to us in the States and he says, love your podcasts, listen to them regularly when I take my dog Charlie out on our hour-long walks. Uh, He he also says that Charlie uh, shares an earphone with him, I wouldn't like to stick my earphones in my dog's ears, I can tell you Um, and he says he he likes listening to us very much, he sent us a picture of Charlie, I have to say Charlie's very cute, but the point he makes here is and this is interesting, people might want to join in on this discussion Dave, put some hot water and some cold water in the freezer, which one freezes first um I've heard that there
3: is I, I, the obvious thing would be that the cold, the cold one because it's first. got less energy got to less start energy with to less threes. to lose hey presto going to freeze sooner i have heard the story that the, cu- the hot water will freeze sooner although i have to say i haven't looked into it in detail honestly.
1: well he's making this point that there are actually some other things going on that people often neglect and i was one of them i always used to say oh it's a load of rubbish the, the hot water will definitely freeze more slowly than the cold water for the simple reason it's got more energy to lose and it takes longer but what he's saying is and i think i believe him um he's saying that a lot of people believe in this there's convection currents going on inside the water. And we did this as a kitchen science experiment, didn't we? Where when you've got something warm, it's less dense, so it rises upwards and the cooler stuff sinks. And this creates a sort of turning circulation inside a a tank, if you've got a tank of, of warm water. Now, what he's saying is if you put that in the freezer, because the water's stirred up by the heat, the water will start moving and it will carry on moving for quite some time. And this will keep mixing the water, enabling it, after it's cooled down, to keep losing heat more quickly than cold water because that's more static and doesn't move so much to start with, and therefore the cold the, the cold water will be overtaken on the freezing process possibly by the hot water.
3: The other thing which has just occurred to me is if you heat up water and boil it, you drive off all the gases dissolved in it, and those gases dissolved in it might be reducing how well it um, will, will reduce the freezing point.
1: Yeah, sure, and the hardness as well, yeah. because, of course, when you boil your kettle, you get scale. That's the bicarbonate precipitating as calcium bi- uh, calcium carbonate, isn't it, in, in there. Those impurities will lower the, uh, the yeah. freezing point. So if you did the experiment fairly and used distilled water or something, then that should be an accurate way of, of knowing. Testing.
2: I reckon there's a kitchen science experiment in there somewhere. We just had a quick call from Aaron, uh, who's in Orpington in Kent, and he says, when you see jets across the sky, sometimes they leave vapour trails for miles behind them, sometimes it's barely visible. Is this because of different types of fuel? And now I reckon it's not, I reckon it's to do with the weather. Yeah, I would have said it's
3: the weather, um, because planes all run on the same fuel, kerosene, um, and when you burn it, it's got carbon hydrogen in it and the hydrogen will burn with oxygen to form water, and that will condense to form little clouds, which are the long, thin clouds you see. Now, if the plane's flying through a particularly dry piece of air, that, those water droplets will evaporate quite quickly and dis- dissipate very quickly. But if they're flying through air, which is really quite damp already, then there's nothing that
1: the air can't evaporate, the water can't evaporate. So those clouds stay there for ages. Thank you, Dave. It's so, the Naked Scientists, and if you have any science questions for us, lines are open out, 08459 2000. You can email me, chris at nakedscientists.com or text in on 07786 20 1960. Now, recently, scientists studying the outer part of our solar system, which is known as the Kuiper Belt, and that's the name of it because it forms this ring outside the orbit of Neptune, have found a very strange object, which has been christened 2003 EL61. But then, after they found that one, they found some more objects that looked really similar. Bit of a mystery because they couldn't work out where they came from, but now Mike Brown from California Institute of Technology has solved the mystery, and it turns out they're all part of one big happy family, and even more surprisingly, we may personally have met some of their relatives.
4: This is one of those things that you stumble upon without having any idea that it's there. We found this very interesting object a couple of years ago. It's out in space, beyond Neptune, and it's bigger than Pluto in one dimension, but it's actually about half the size of Pluto in the other dimension. It's, it's shaped sort of like an American football that uh, had some of the air left let out of it and, and stepped on. And it spins end over end every four hours. And uh, what we have recently found is that the object was smashed by something else that was maybe half the size of Pluto maybe four billion years ago. And that's what led it to rotate. And the interesting thing that, that has finally happened is that we found the other chunks that fell off of it after it got smashed.
1: So where have they gone? You'd anticipate that if something was smashed into by something the size of Pluto, that the the remnants, the shrapnel, would disappear.
4: Right, so uh, two of the little pieces actually went into orbit around this object. The other six pieces that we found are not in orbit around the object, but they're in orbit around the sun. They, they got ejected from the object itself, but they didn't get ejected fast enough, so you can still see them in, in the vicinity of this object uh, out there past Neptune.
1: Playing devil's advocate, how do you know, Mike, that those, those remnants are, are actually from that parent object that, that first got smashed into and not just other debris that's accumulated nearby?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. The, the the only way that we realized that these were all chunks from the original body is that they're all made of exactly the same material, and there's nothing else out there beyond Neptune that we found that looks like it's made of exactly the same material. So that was the original thing we found. We thought, wow, this is strange. There's this one big body that's, that's rotating fast and shaped like a football that's made out of this. And then we started finding just a few more, and we thought, what's, what's going on? Why are these small number of objects? And then suddenly it dawned on us that these are all really right in the same place in orbit around the Sun. If you trace their orbits back, you can actually see, essentially, that they intersect.
1: So that's the, the outer solar system, but, but does this give us any clues as to the sort of configurations that you see closer in, nearer to Earth?
4: The the fascinating implication for the inner solar system is that this collision that happened probably four and a half billion years ago, right at the, the beginning of the solar system, this collision just by chance, happen to occur in a region of the outer solar system that is, that is close to being unstable. That is, that if, the, if you put something in orbit there, it, uh, it won't stay in that orbit for, for a very long time, which means that all of these fragments from this massive collision have had the chance to become unstable, and when they become unstable, they work their way into the inner solar system, and they become things that we call comets, today. So it's very likely, in fact, inevitable, that some of the comets that we have seen in our lives have been from this actual collision. And in fact, it it must also be that that sometime in the past, chunks of this very large object that broke apart in the outer solar system have landed on the Earth and are, are somewhere around somewhere.
1: That was an incredible piece of detective work, wasn't it? That was Mike Brown from the California Institute of Technology explaining how he's pieced back together the remains of a cosmic collision that took place over four billion years ago in the outer reaches of the solar system. He's actually published that work in this week's edition of Nature.
2: And We've got some updates on the teaser here. We have Connor in Tillingham, who's had a pretty good guess, and Carolyn in Chelmsford, who's also had a pretty good guess. Our teaser today is, how much electricity could you generate if you covered the whole of the Sahara Desert in solar panels? And just as a bit of a clarification, we want an answer in, in watts, and uh, we'll give a prize to the person who's the closest uh, to the nearest order of magnitude. Not in what? In watts, what? What?
1: Sorry, I'm being And you get
2: you get a mud-powered clock. I really want to see one of these things to They're figure really out to do. really fantastic. It no,
0: it's
1: really fantastic, and, and it's it's just using the chemical reactions that happen between different metals and the soil to create enough electricity to power a clock. You can really wow your friends out with this. It's been kindly given to us by noisemakers, um, a group of scientists who actually believe in trying to make science fun and interesting, which is, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do too.
2: That certainly sounds like a cool clock to win. So, yeah, how many, how much electricity would you generate if we covered the Sahara Desert in solar panels?
1: laying the facts bare the naked scientists now
3: we've had a question here from kevin mulford who similar to the plane question you're asking earlier cat has launched watched a shuttle launch in florida and apparently a couple of hours after the shuttle launched he saw a really bright glow high up in the sky a long way up above the cloud tops he was wondering what it was i think that could be related to your um to the planes because the shuttle is basically once it gets high up it's just burning hydrogen and oxygen which will just produce water and then that should that will probably if you if the conditions are right will condense out to form a cloud when it's high up there and then if the light caught it right possibly it didn't even condense quick enough to make big enough drops you to see for quite a long time and or the light wasn't catching it right until a couple of hours later when you could see a glowing glow in the sky.
1: Thank you, Dave. Great answer. Uh, got an email here from Mark who says Hello, naked scientists. First of all, I'd like to say how great your program is. I'm a science geek, and your program keeps me company every week. I'm 17 and from Malta, and I'm preparing for my biology and chemistry A levels. And it's my birthday next week. I'd like to ask you a question what's actually happening when you fry food? You mentioned oils in in a recent programme and it got me thinking. Well, the answer, Mark, when you fry food is something called the Maillard reaction kicks in after a Frenchman called uh, Louis-Camille Maillard. And what this is is a chemical reaction between carbohydrate groups and... Um, Yeah, that's loads of sugars, largely. And protein, or amino acids, those are the building blocks of proteins, and that takes place at about 148 degrees. And so when these these sugar groups lock onto the amino acid groups, they form these nice, brown, caramelised substances, which taste great. That's the nice aroma you get from cooking. And because it happens at 148 degrees, that's obviously 48 degrees hotter than water boils at, and that's why you get a very different consistency and taste and texture to fried food compared with things that you boil.
2: Oh, God, I'm really hungry now. (laughs) Wish we hadn't talked about that. Uh, We've had a question here from Steve Caponia and uh, he's in North Carolina, and he says he, along with his daughter and granddaughter, have the beta thalassemia trait, and he's read that this is a mutation that can help prevent carriers from getting malaria. Is this true, or does he have the same chance of getting uh, malaria as anyone else? And as far as I'm aware, that yes, it is true. Um, having uh, the beta thalassemia gene, um, you, c- you get two copies of every gene, one from mum and one from dad. If you have two duff copies of this gene, then you um, you have quite serious sickle cell anemia. Um,
1: not sickle cell anemia. Is it not thalassemia?
2: Um, and it's there's the same thing for sickle cell anemia as well. Uh, but if you have one Duff copy, then. Um, you, your cells are just, you know, might be slightly wrong and this could actually protect you against blood parasites like malaria, that's my because understanding. Because they live in red
1: cells, don't they? So it, it kind of makes the red cell inhospitable to malaria so it doesn't grow very efficiently so it finds it much harder just to It's the same to thing to for
2: thalassemia as sickling as well.
1: I think anything that makes red cells a bit less usual, because obviously malaria as a parasite will be optimised to live in a certain kind of cell and cellular environment. So if you change that by having different chemicals in there because the gene is slightly different, the result is... You will end up with a less hospitable home for the parasite to grow. So, as a result, it doesn't grow so well. That's what we reckon.
3: Time now for what's one of the liter- literally the coolest kitchen science experiments I've ever done. In a refreshing change of venue, I went to our local pub, the Flying Pin- Pig. Flying Pig. Pig. Um, with Asie and Justin, um, where
1: we made a bottle of fizzy drink freeze instantly just by opening it. And even though it's called the Flying Pig, you really can believe this one.
5: Hello, Chris. We are down in the Flying Pig, just round the corner from our studios here in Cambridge. And Justine, the landlady, is going to help us out. Hello. And Dave is here with me, of course. Good evening. The purpose of this week's Kitchen Science is really to answer one of the questions we had coming in a few weeks ago from Steve in New Zealand. He wrote in and asked why it was that his beer can that he had cooled in the freezer froze as soon as he opened it when it was liquid to start with. And Justine has kindly accepted us in her pub and we are now going to do a bit of an experiment to explain exactly why that happens. Dave, would you like to tell us what we've got here as a setup?
3: Yeah, well, we've set up an experiment to kind of duplicate what he was doing but slightly more cheaply using lemonade rather than beer. I've got some ice in some buckets and I've added salt to that ice, which has cooled it down below zero. In fact, I can measure the temperature of it using this neat little thermometer here and it's sitting at about minus 4 degrees centigrade. In that, I've been cooling down some bottles of lemonade, and hopefully, if we can get Justine to open one, we
5: can see what happens. Justine, just explain to me what you've got there. It looks like just an ordinary bottle of lemonade. And I can see the liquid moving about as you're moving it. The top is actually sealed at the moment. Mm
0: -hmm.
5: Have a go at opening it. It's... it's... (laughs) It's freezing. It it has indeed frozen. As soon as you open the top, the entire bottle started freezing and now you've got a big block of lemonade ice in there. That's amazing. (laughs) That's brilliant. Do you want to hazard a guess at why that might be happening? I've got no idea why that happened at all.
3: Well, to be honest, this confused us for a couple of months until a guy called Jeff Mendez from California gave us an email and gave us an explanation for what he reckons is going on. In that water bath, it's about minus 4 degrees centigrade, and water should normally freeze. And in fact, over here, I've got a bottle of lemonade, which I let all the fizz out of earlier, and that has actually frozen solid. Now, the reason why the first bottle of lemonade wasn't frozen to start with was it's got lots of carbon dioxide, which makes it fizzy, dissolved in it. Now, if you dissolve things in water, like salt, it reduces the point at which they freeze. So instead of freezing at 0 degrees centigrade, it'll freeze at maybe minus 5, minus 6 degrees centigrade. So you've got a bottle of lemonade which is sitting at minus 4 degrees centigrade. And then you open the lid and you let out all that carbon dioxide. Now there's much less stuff dissolved in it. So the point at which it freezes, instead of being minus 7, is now about minus 1 or 0. So it wants to freeze... And it also adds lots of little tiny bubbles, which gives lots of places for the crystals to start freezing on. It freezes in front of your very eyes.
5: So effectively, the lemonade should have frozen at minus four. But because it's got carbon dioxide dissolved in it, it doesn't quite freeze at that temperature. Once you let out the carbon dioxide, it then pushes up that freezing point, and it decides that it's going to freeze as soon as you open the bottle.
3: Yeah, that's right. Also, the fact that you've got bubbles forming gives lots of places for the ice crystals to start forming, so it'll freeze very, very quickly.
5: Great. That was really cool. And thanks, Steve, for writing in with that uh, cool question. And thanks, Jeff, for writing in with the great answer. And thank you, Justine, for letting us uh, use your lemonade and your pub to do this kitchen science. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. Back to you, Chris that is the best
2: experiment not just kitchen science, pub science Brilliant. I thought it was
1: really cool because it was I kind of interactive be of that. because that experiment came from someone sending us a question we didn't have a clue what the answer was to start with we kind of made up a few answers which was not entirely untrue but they weren't spot on and then Jeff got in touch from California and said hey I used to do this at Yale When was it at medical school or something Dave?
3: Um, yeah, uh, he did it, I think he did it actually at school and then he was showing his mates when he was on some so he, conference somewhere. He writes somewhere. in and says,
1: you, wanted to, you know, this is the reason guys, we, we Dave optimises it, does it in the pub Everyone's happy
2: This is what scientists do for fun a <laughs> conference Look at my lemonade everyone
1: Now you cannot possibly have have failed to notice that it is National Science and Engineering Week and the Cambridge Science Festival is now in full swing. Yesterday was the grand opening and that saw at least 10,000 people descend on the town eager to get hands on and interactive. The really big launch took place yesterday on Saturday and I went along together with some of the other members of the Naked Scientist team to find out a bit more about it. My first port of call was the pathology department where I had the opportunity to meet the microbes that live in me
6: I'm Gillian Fraser, I'm a lecturer here in pathology and what we've done here today is try to show people the types of bacteria that are associated with their bodies. And the way we've done this is we've actually decided to culture some of the bacteria that we've found on ourselves. For example, I've taken a toothpick and I picked out some of the plaque between my teeth and then I plated it out onto an agar plate and then I've taken those bacteria and stained them put them under the microscope to see what's there.
1: So who's the most germ-infested pathologist in the department as far as we can tell? Is that you?
6: Yes I think that honour definitely goes to me. We found some pretty interesting bugs lurking in my mouth. There were some Fusobacterium which are these long branching bacteria. We also found some Streptococci. Often those cause things like sore throats but some Streptococci are actually quite good for us and protect us from bad bugs.
1: I was going to say, because you don't look ill, you don't look germ infested, so how can you have all these bugs flourishing on you and in you and and yet not be unwell?
6: They're actually very important for us to help um, prevent bad bacteria from gaining a foothold on our epithelial surfaces. They colonise these surfaces, prevent the bad bacteria from being able to stick there, and they can also produce things like toxins against these bad bacteria, which kill them.
1: And how do these bugs get about?
6: Well, actually, if we go over and look at this microscope here, we've got some uh, lab E. coli K12. These are motile bacteria. You can see them moving about quite rapidly. Now, these bugs have these amazing rotary nanomachines called flagella. They're long propellers that extend from the bacterial cell surface, and they rotate at amazingly high speeds, up to 60,000 rpm.
1: I don't mean to insult bacteria, but... You know, they're not known for their intelligence, so how do they know which way to swim?
6: Well, actually, uh, bacteria are quite intelligent. They have a memory, and in fact, they can sense their environment. They can taste the chemicals in their environment. And they can also remember what their environment was like about a second ago, so they can make a decision as to whether their life is getting better or whether it's getting worse. And they can move in a direction that takes them to a better place, maybe where there's nutrients.
1: Gillian Fraser, who, by her own admission, is the most germ-infested member of the pathology department. Well, while I was getting up close and personal with E. coli, naked scientist Mira Synthalingam got wind of a tasty demonstration that was taking place in the chemistry department.
2: Apparently, over in Chemistry in Action, they're making ice cream with liquid nitrogen as one of the demonstrations. This method is meant to give an absolutely delicious result, so I'm heading over to the chemistry department now to see if I can get my hands on some.
7: So what we're going to do here... We're going to make ice cream. So we're going to put in our three ice cream ingredients. So firstly, we want some cream. Then we're going to add some milk. And then probably the most important ingredient, in my mind, is the sugar. So if you were just making ice cream in you know, a factory or at home or whatever, the way you'd do it is you'd put it in a normal commercial freezer. And it would be about minus 25, roughly, and you'd stir it as it froze. We haven't got a big commercial freezer. OK, and we also don't have the several hours that it takes to do that. So what we're going to use is liquid nitrogen. And the reason ice cream is so tasty is because the sugar dissolves in the water in the milk and that gets frozen into little ice crystals. You can't feel these little ice crystals because they're so small. And the ice crystals are surrounded by the fat of the milk. Okay? So when you put them in your mouth they feel kind of creamy but as the fat gets digested by your kind of tongue and the enzymes in your, in your mouth it releases the little ice crystals and the sugar just hits you as a burst, bam, on your tongue. So as nitrogen boils off, it's drawing its energy from the cream, which is hot on it, OK? So it's cooling the cream down as it boils off. And does that look like ice cream to you? Yes. yes. OK, let's serve
8: uh, it up. So I'm here with Simon, and he's going to explain
2: why ice cream tastes better when it's made with liquid nitrogen.
9: When you taste ice cream, what you taste as the texture is the grain size of the ice crystals. And so if you freeze it really quickly using something at a h- minus 178 degrees Celsius you get much, much smaller crystals, and so it doesn't taste as grainy.
2: What's your name? Lawrence. Isabel. So what did you think? I thought that the um, smoke coming off of it was really mystifying. It was very um, interesting. It's really nice, and it's nice and creamy. Well, I thought it was delicious, so I'm off in search of the technician to see if I can persuade him to let me take some liquid nitrogen home.
1: Which proves another scientific theory that you can always trust the girls to track down the food, especially if it involves ice cream or chocolate. Also taking place on Saturday was a presentation by Mark Abrams, the guy who founded the Ig Nobel Prizes. Now, unlike their more auspicious namesakes, they're awarded for scientific endeavours that make people laugh but then think. Previous winners include a team of doctors who showed that people living near radio stations playing an above-average amount of country music are much more likely to kill themselves than average, and another study which sought to confirm the myth that belly-button fluff is always blue. Ben Valsler went along to find out what visitors thought of the Ig Nobel concept.
10: Most prizes are for the very best of something, or the very worst of something. Best or worst doesn't matter for the Ig Nobel Prizes. Important or worthless, that too doesn't matter. All that matters is you've done something that first makes people laugh and then make them think.
3: Why is it that you've decided to come to see the Ig Nobel Prize show? Uh, We've actually seen it before, um, a couple of years ago and we were really entertained, so we wanted to come and see it again, see if there's anything new. Uh, Because I believe it could be quite amusing.
4: Yeah, I
10: think, yes, the idea of joke science is is appealing to me, yes. yes. So I'm looking forward to this, yeah. The Ig Nobel Prizes are given every year. We started doing this in 1991. We give ten of these a year. They're all about things that first make people laugh and then make people think. The Ig Nobel Literature Prize was awarded to Daniel Oppenheimer for his report called Consequences of Erudite Vernacular Utilized Irrespective of Necessity, Problems with Using Long Words Needlessly. (laughs) The Ig Nobel Medicine Prize was awarded to Dr. Francis Fezmeyer of Tennessee for his medical case report, called Termination of Intractable Hiccups with Digital Rectal Massage. Is there anyone here who needs this concept clarified? Is there anyone here who has hiccups at the moment? Do you think we're a
3: bit too serious about science? Yeah, I think we are Probably at the time. I think this is a good example of how it should be.
2: Oh,
9: yes.
3: <laughs> so it's nice to see a light-hearted approach in something like
9: this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Having done a PhD, people take it much too seriously.
1: (laughs) I should think that just the thought of a digital rectal exam is enough to cure most cases of hiccups. That was Ben Valsler finding out about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Now, someone who is clearly enjoying the festival very much was the university's vice-chancellor, Professor Alison Richard.
9: I think that the Cambridge Science Festival this year is brilliant, but then, of course, it's brilliant every year. And how do I know that? You just walk around and look at the faces. The kids are totally intent, but it's also the volunteers who are completely intent talking to the kids. There's just an engagement complicated things are made simple and explicable and even people like me uh, imagine for a brief moment that you actually understand some of this stuff now i have a question for you because i've been i've been failing to get the answers right on many questions this morning do you know how many bones there are in the human body adult or baby
1: adult Two hundred and six.
9: Oh, 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 naked scientist! You know it all. I, the, one of the other answers was three hundred and forty-eight. Now I'm a biological anthropologist, and I got the answer wrong. So it's never too late to learn, and that's—I uh, think that's probably the sort of the message for the grown-ups here. You know, you can always learn more.
1: Um, I, I can't tell you how relieved I am that I could answer that question actually, because my cred was surfing on that. Brilliant!
9: That's brilliant, brilliant naked scientist. I'm impressed. Now, now what's this very interesting, colourful ah. thing? Well, this is uh, the structure of DNA. It's the double helix. It is also a kind of molecular origami. I folded paper to make this. It's hard to describe it if you can't see it, but I'm very proud of it. And it's going to go home and sit on my mantelpiece. It's fun to make it. And again, to me, this is the embodiment of this festival, that it's taking very complex ideas, turning them into something physical that you can actually do and take away and think about. And that's great.
1: You must have quite a collection of these, because last year when we were here, you were walking around with a giant pink balloon that you were telling me was some salmonella. It was
9: not a giant (laughs) pink balloon at all. It was a bacterium. i have forgotten what the species is, but it was definitely a bacterium. And the year before that, I built a robot. Maybe you don't remember, but I still have that, my robot car. So it's great. Where are you
1: heading off to next?
9: Uh, now I'm off to the university centre where there is a crane construction challenge. I have no idea what that means, but I'll go and find out.
1: Cambridge University's Vice-Chancellor, Alison Richard, enjoying the Cambridge Science Festival yesterday. It's the country's largest free science festival. All the events and exhibitions are continuing all this week, and if you want to go along, there's plenty to go and see. There's another big science on Saturday day in a week's time, and all the details are on their website. That's cambridgescience.org.
2: And we've had some updates in on our teaser. Daniel in Clacton, not that close. Megan in London, very, very close. Uh, Mike in Beatley, not that close either. What we want to know is, how much electricity would you generate if we covered the whole of the Sahara Desert in solar panels? We want an answer in watts, and uh, the person to the nearest power of ten will win a mud-powered clock from noisemakers.
1: Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientist's. I'm out across the Atlantic and find out from Bob and Chelsea how a fungus infected with a
0: virus is helping grasses to grow on roasting hot soils, and why it's curtains for coral. This week for the Naked Scientists, symbiosis meets climate change. In case you don't remember from school, symbiosis is when totally different types of organisms live together in a mutually beneficial relationship, sort of like marriage. I'm going to talk about a trio of codependent creatures that like it really hot. But first, Chelsea tells us how the warming world is causing corals and their algae partners to break up.
8: Even if you're worried about global warming, it probably seems like a fairly distant threat. But to coral reefs, it's a clear and present danger. Evolutionary ecologist Drew Harvell of Cornell says warm temperatures seem to weaken corals' immune systems while at the same time causing diseases to flourish, a one-two punch. What's more, corals have a symbiotic relationship with a type of algae that provide them with oxygen and nutrients. And the algae are actually very sensitive to changes in temperature. And so even one or two degree increase in temperature can cause the symbiosis to fall apart, the zooxanthellae to leave the coral, and the coral can die if the thermal stress doesn't end. In fact, scientists have documented several cases of heat-related coral death around the world. Harvell and others hope to save those that remain by finding ways to boost their immunity, kill their diseases, and protect them from people.
0: Thanks, Chelsea. There's a kind of grass called panic grass in Yellowstone National Park here in the U.S. that thrives in hot geothermal soils, which can reach 50 degrees Celsius. It was recently discovered that a kind of fungus on the plant's roots makes this possible. Neither the fungus nor the grass can withstand the high temperature alone. But now researchers have found that the fungus confers this heat-resisting power only when it's infected with a virus. Marilyn Rousink of the Samuel Roberts Noble Foundation in Oklahoma says they were able to reveal the three-way dependency by curing some of the plants of the virus.
9: When the plants were colonized with the fungus infected with the virus then they were heat tolerant, and when they were colonized with the fungus without the virus or with no fungus, they died under the heat stress.
0: Rusing says understanding survival mechanisms like these isn't just academically interesting.
9: With the global climate changes that we're all facing now, we're going to see a lot more extreme environments on the planet, and that would include higher temperatures, also probably more periods of drought. So we need to understand how plants normally tolerate natural extreme environments.
0: And that may better equip us to grow crops when environments that seem extreme today become more normal.
8: Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll talk about how some scientists are using sound to make the lovely sights of public aquariums accessible to the visually impaired.
0: Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists.
2: Oh, thanks, Bob and Chelsea. It's so uh, great to hear from them. There'll be more from Bob and Chelsea next week, I reckon.
1: Thank you, Cap. And this is, of course, the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Cat. Time now to join none other than Peter Metcalf, who is from the University of Auckland in New Zealand. He has uncovered a very interesting crystal structure of an insect virus. It makes these things in cells and they behave a bit like a viral sarcophagus. The virus gets locked away inside this, in- this crystal structure and it protects the virus when it gets out of the insect into the soil because these things wait for hapless insects to come by and then infect them. Here's the guy who's discovered it. Hi, Peter. Hello. thank you for for joining us you've published this in the journal nature recently so it's obviously an important discovery uh it's it's been a mystery for some time though hasn't it how these things worked
11: yes yes um, these um, crystals have been known since the end of the 19th century um, and in fact they were the the first viruses that in fact the only viruses that you can actually see with a, with a microscope and people have always been puzzled about what these crystals are and it turns out that the crystals actually contain virus particles. Virus particles, of course, are much too small to see with a, um, a microscope.
1: How many are in each crystal, Peter? E-
11: each crystal um, contains thousands of virus particles. So the actual infectious object that the, that the insect eats when it gets infected is a, is a little crystal containing virus particles.
1: Why does it need to resort to that? Because there are lots of viruses around that don't use this technique. So why do these insect viruses have to make these, these clever sort of sarcophagi to lock themselves <coughs> away into?
11: Well, I guess nobody really knows that, but what we think is that the crystals um, stabilise the virus. So most viruses uh, don't last very long in the environment, but these crystals contained in the viruses last for years and years. In fact, um, when you eat a cabbage from the supermarket, you're likely to be eating these uh, viruses because the crystals last so long, they're they're really impossible to get rid of.
1: How did you break the structure of them? How did you work out what they were made of, these crystals, and, and solve this mystery?
11: Yes, well, while the the crystals are um, uh, very small, sorry, big enough to see in a light microscope, they're very small compared with the crystals that protein crystallographers generally use. So we're x-ray crystallographers, and we use a very special new micro-x-ray beam at the Swiss Light Source, um, which is a synchrotron uh, near Zurich. Uh, And we use these. Uh, this, this beam to shoot these crystals to figure out the atomic structure.
1: So in other words the X-ray goes into the crystal, it gets bounced about all over the place and the pattern of, of beams of light that come out tell you something about how the atoms must be arranged inside the crystal?
11: That's right, that's exactly right.
1: So now you've you've, you've sussed this out, does it tell us anything useful in terms of how we might be able to exploit these particular crystals for say medicine or technology?
11: Yes, it certainly does because um, of course what we did was to figure out the atomic structure of the crystals so we know kind of how they're made in in great detail and that means that we can modify them and the interesting thing is we found inside the crystal uh, nucleotides, the the subunits of DNA um, and that means that we can put, for example, other things in these crystals and we also know how to put things in the crystals instead of the virus in place of the virus. So the crystals can be used as kind of micro containers, very small little objects for containing other things and stabilising them. So given
1: that you can stabilise a virus naturally, that's how the insect virus works, and a big problem in say the third world with vaccines is keeping things in a fridge because third world countries don't have power for long enough to power fridges. Could you therefore use this as a novel kind of vaccine technology where you could put very fragile viruses inside these things, they would be stabilised, they could then be transported all over the place and given to people when they needed them and they would protect them?
4: Yes,
11: that's certainly one of our thoughts. Um, There's a whole variety of applications. Um, The the, the lack of stability of proteins in general is a big problem in biotechnology, and and so a nice method like this for stabilising them is generally important.
1: Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's Professor Peter Metcalf, who is at the University of Auckland and has discovered the structure of these interesting insect virus crystals that are behaving a bit like a sarcophagus for virus particles fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed <laughs> on your way to work or even at work mm-hmm. why not subscribe to our podcast for more information visit nakedscientistscom forward slash podcast the naked scientists with dr chris dr dave and dr cat and it's been our science festival best of the fest wonderful things going on at Cambridge University. Science, uh, it's cambridgescience.org, their website, if you want to find out what you can go and see this week. It's all free, and we'll also be covering it with a special series of Naked Scientist dedicated podcasts, uh, which uh, involve us going out and seeing what events there are and then turning them into little programmes, which you can get from our website, which is nakedscientist.com. And it's a big week for our website, because Dr Dave has achieved the unachievable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, we've totally overhauled it, Dave... When we started doing this project, how long did we reckon it was going to take us to just, you know, we we thought we would just turn the old side into this brand spanking new one?
3: Yeah, it was three or four months at the most,
1: wasn't it? Did we say as long as that? I thought that we were going to get someone to help us with a few designs, (laughs) and then we would just take a couple of weeks to translate the content over it, and it would be easy. Uh, How long has it taken you now? It's about eight months, isn't it? Yeah. But but how many hours a day have you been working? Come on, be honest. be honest. At least nine or ten most days.
3: (laughs)
2: He's
1: going for a pay rise. I
2: tell you, it's really paid off, though. We've already had comments from Reg in Australia and, and David, who've said that they really, really like the new website. And it's fantastic. Right now, if you go to the main Naked Scientist page, you can see us on the webcam. Um, when the show's live, you can see us on the webcam and you can see the bit where Chris nipped out to the toilet. I was going to say, Dave, Dave pointed out to me, he
1: said, hey, by the way, Chris, you know the new site it shows the webcam from the studio, it shows where we all are and when we're in here, and you can see you're notable by your absence. So there you are, talking on this programme, you're not actually here.
2: And also, we had um, a question in from Ted Tryon, who wanted to know where the podcast from the end of February and the beginning of March had gone. Yeah, but Dave, they should- they should all be back up there now. I understand.
3: Yeah, and much easier to find now.
1: Much exactly. Better navigation. So for. go
2: and check it out: thenakedscientist.com.
1: But Dave, just so people are aware. we're not just gratuitously sort of banging on about this what are the key sort of features that you think make this site much easier for people to use now
3: well it's much easier to use Navigation's a lot better we've now collected all the things like kitchen science. all the kitchen sites are in one place so if you want to do an experiment which you heard months ago you can do it because um, there's a
1: whole there's pages and pages of all the experiments with a, what you need how you do it this is what you're looking for and that kind of stuff
3: yeah and it should be it's very easy for us to change so you be able to keep it really up to date and you be able to see everything really well
2: it's an absolute bargain. Anyway, it's getting close to the end of the show now, so um, we've we've had some answers in on our teaser. So we're going to reveal the answer to you. Our teaser today was, if the entire Sahara Desert was covered in solar panels, how much electricity would it generate? And now Dave has been hard at work with the figures trying to figure this one out.
1: Well, first of all, before he gives us the answer, can you just tell us, you know, who said what? What kind of answers okay, did we get? OK, here,
2: we had some answers. So, for example, uh, Connor and Tillingham said 600 million kilowatts, and uh, my sums, although they're not terribly great. That works out as uh, nine, 10, uh, six times 10 to the 11. Uh, We've had Daniel in Clacton, who says one billion, that's one times 10 to the 12. Um, And we've also had Mike in Beatley, who says 100,000 million watts, that's one times 10 to the 11. So what is the answer?
3: Well, the Sahara apparently is about 9 million square kilometres. That's about 9 trillion square metres. Near the equator, you get about a kilowatt of solar energy per square metre. So that's about 9,000 trillion watts. Um, now, well, as hit,
1: hitting the entire hitting the whole Sahara Desert, Sahara desert, Sahara in terms desert. Of
3: solar energy. Yeah. Right. Now, solar cells at the best, maybe about a third, thirty percent efficient. So that's taking it down to about three thousand trillion watts. Um, because you get night time and day and night times, probably about another third, another quarter. It's about one thousand trillion watts, or one times ten to the fifteen watts.
1: So that's a petawatt, is it?
3: Yeah. Um, compared to that, a the UK uses about 70 gigawatts of power maximum generation time. capacity. So we, so we
1: could power the, the world pretty much, pretty the Sahara much, yeah. Desert then. I mean, one petawatt, I know, I know that figure because that's the power of the Gulf Stream, the hot current that brings warm water from the tropics up to, towards Europe north in the Atlantic and keeps us warm and means the grass grows for a long time in Cornwall. Yep, so when solar panels are cheap, it should work beautifully. So why haven't we turned the Sahara into uh, a a sort of array of solar cells then? Just solar cells are so expensive, (laughs) it just wouldn't be economic at all.
2: I think it's nicer as a desert, to be honest. (laughs) Anyway, what we want to know is the winner, and the winner tonight is Carolyn in Chelmsford, who said 750 terawatts, and that's 7.5 times 10 to the 14, if my sums are correct. Also, very close was Megan in London, but it's Carolyn in Chelmsford who wins the mud-powered clock from Noisemakers.
1: Thank you very much to the noisemakers, I guess. I want one of those. Thanks. You can get them from the Science Museum as I well. I want to
2: impress my friends. I've
1: got a quick question here uh, from Chris, who's in Great Yarmouth, and says, Chris and Co, great show, please don't ever stop. Can I just ask you, when you're travelling anywhere, why does it always seem that when you go home, you get to the destination more quickly? What do you think?
2: I reckon it's because you know your way when you're going home. And it's also twice as fast if you've had anything to drink and you're trying to walk or cycle home. You kind of get hyperspeed.
1: Well, you're that's one of those people who say, I'm too drunk to walk, so I had to drive.
3: Is that what
2: you're <laughs> I would never do that. So you reckon on,
3: on the way out, you're paying much more attention, so exactly. you see more yeah.
2: things,
1: so it feels like it's longer. And
2: Maybe if you're a bit unsure about where you're going, you might take longer to uh, to get there.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's down to how much conscious perception we place, because when you know a route very well, you can... If you say to someone, do you, can you recollect doing all these manoeuvres and going around these roundabouts and things, and people will say no. You know, I, I drive along and I don't think I'm, I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing, but I can't recall moment by moment having made some of the manoeuvres I did on the journey. And I think it becomes sort of subconscious, and because it's becoming more automatic and subconscious, you're paying less attention, and as a result, you're not seeing the same things that you would see normally to, to your conscious brain, and therefore it doesn't seem to take so long.
2: So if you're going home, then you're probably not paying so much attention.
1: Right, very quick one for you, Dave, in 30 seconds. Tristan Knowles is in Melbourne, Australia, and says, Hi, Dr. Chris, uh, what causes the Earth to have a magnetic field? Um, they're not
3: entirely sure, but they think it's to do with um, the, the centre of the Earth is a big liquid metal ball, and you get convection currents in that, and a strange thing where that excites itself and turns itself into a dynamo. You get electric currents, which make it an electromagnet, and that's what they reckon is causing the Earth's magnetic field.
1: Because it does flip from time to time, but I think, isn't it? The, the average is about once every 100,000 years, but in fact, it's, it's less than that.
3: Yeah, they reckon we're due to that, due for one fairly soon, and Ooh. the Earth's magnetic field getting weaker quite fast so at the, the moment. So the
1: North Pole becomes the South Pole. Yep. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you very much, Dave and Kat, for a wonderful show. On next week's Naked Scientist, we'll be taking to the air, quite literally, because we'll be looking at the world of flight, and that goes for both man and beast, because Jenny Goodman will be here from Oxford University to explain how aeroplanes can now be made to fly at Mach 6. That's six times the speed of sound, or two kilometres a second. Find out how that works next week. Plus, Graham Taylor, who's also from Oxford, will be airing his views about the latest research on how animals fly, and he'll also be asking, answering the age-old question about how does a fly land on the ceiling. Quick Last question here. If an aeroplane was on a runway comprising a giant conveyor belt moving at the same speed as the aeroplane but in the opposite direction would the plane get airborne? Can you help us with that? Chris at nakedscientist.com. Thanks to our wonderful production team here at the BBC. See you next week.